0: Some of these are old, and you know them. Don't fall asleep. We're going to have our 10th anniversary celebration this coming Sunday, and the church is going to provide lunch for everyone, so just nobody has to prepare anything or bring covered dishes or empty covered dishes or whatever. And that will be right after the morning worship service, and we'll have a prayer time, time of church prayer afterwards. Uh, in April, we're having our men's camp out, book out on April the 18th and 19th. The 18th is Good Friday, so uh, be sure to sign up for that. We need to have the sign-up sheet out there so we know how many men are going to come, and if they're going to come out for the meals and stay overnight. I know that last year some men came and they didn't show up until Saturday morning, so we just need to know for uh, logistical reasons. Then Resurrection Sunday is April the 20th, and then Uh, Just to let everybody know, because some people really, every year, I'm not kidding you, every single year, I have some people who want me to do a Passover demonstration. I think every year is a little too frequently, every other year. I think it's been about three years. So this year, since Pesach is going to be on Monday, I will do a Passover demonstration on Resurrection morning. So some people want to know that because they want to invite some friends or someone to come. So that will be what we do this coming uh, Resurrection Sunday. Also, the garage sale for Camp Arete is going to be on Saturday, May the 3rd. And if you uh, need information about that or want to sell something, contact Jeff Phipps. Now, one other thing that's not on my list is that we're just about finalized the Israel trip for next year. And the information should be up on the Internet within the next uh, 24 hours or so. There's going to be two parts to the Israel trip. The main trip... Departure is on November the 7th, which is a Friday, arriving in Israel on November the 8th, but there's going to be a pre-trip uh, excursion, an extra addition, which means those who'd like to, we're going to go over uh, about four days early, and we're going to do a brief tour through the Negev, and then we're going to go to Petra, and we'll spend all day in Petra, we'll spend two nights there at the Marriott, which is very nice. And that way people can spend a lot of the, There's a lot to explore, a lot to hike around and see in Petra and go up to the very top. And if you go to the top and you get to the very, very top, you'll see a sign about 200, 300 yards away that says scenic overlook this way. And if you walk out to that sign, you'll see another sign on the next horizon saying scenic overlook this way. And you walk out there, you'll see another sign about two or 300 yards away, and this goes on for about five signs, until finally you get there, and I was the only one, I think, who walked all the way out there, but when you get all the way out there, there is a ridge on the left just to the south, and you can make out a building that's on top of that ridge, and that is the monument they have built over the grave of Aaron. Now, what I want to know is how do you get there because that is some of the most rugged country I have ever seen. But it's great to hike that. So we're going to go to Petra and then we come back. A couple things we're going to do unique to this trip. Uh, I've never taken a group into Samaria before. Not like we did last, the last time where we went with another group and we stayed in Area C, which is completely under Israel's uh, Israeli control. We're going to go into Palestinian-controlled territory this time. We're going to go to Samaria. We're going to go to Shechem. We're going to go to a few other sites around there, Mount Gerizim, and possibly to Jericho, depending on how long it takes during the day to go to these places. But um, a lot of uh, people don't go to these places. We're also going to go to Bethlehem. We haven't been to Bethlehem in about seven or eight years, and some other sites. So it's going to be a tremendous trip. And I'm not. when I went the last time, I knew I would go again this time, but I don't know when I'm going to take another group back. Uh, for a number of reasons, so uh, this is going to be it, so people who keep saying, I really want to go, um, uh, maybe not this year, there may not be another chance, this is the last time that I know of, I mean, I may take another group in four or five years, but I'm not planning a next trip right now, so that information is going to be on the, um, on the website, right, Barb? We're getting there, we just about got the brochure finished. And now we've got all of the details, I think, finally worked worked out. So it's a trip in November this year. Departure on the first trip will be on a Monday, November the 3rd. And the weather should be great. We're not going to have to fight droughts in 115-degree temperatures or 105-degree temperatures of Masada. And so it should be a lot more enjoyable than the last time where we had to actually curtail activities because it was unseasonably warm with temperatures around 108, 110, 114 uh, in the afternoon. That was just a little too tough for most people. So we're not doing that. We said as the Israeli slogan for Masada is never again. Incidentally, that's why the Jews are not going to be run out of the land. Some people get the idea, well, they're going to be defeated and rescattered and they'll get back. Trust me, the attitude of 50% of the Jews in the world, almost 50% who live in Israel, is never again. So if they are going to be kicked out of the land, they will be massacred in the land. And that will be the end of the ones that are there. They will never again be scattered. They're not going to give it up. They will, uh, it will become a nuclear, not that they will do it, but whoever their enemies are will have to make it a nuclear waste dump. And guess what? That's not the scenario we have for, for Israel in the scripture. So that's just a historical argument for why this, it, they're not going to be kicked out again. This is, this is a final situation, uh, for them. Doesn't mean that I'm, date setting, just that they're not going to be leaving and coming back, leaving and coming back. Some people have a yo-yo theory that they're going to go out and come back and go out and come back. You know, they come they come back one time and this is it. Uh, the next time is going to be a regenerate nation at the end of the tribulation. All right, let's, uh, enough blather, let's uh, focus on what we're going to study this evening and go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to begin with so you can make sure you're spiritually prepared. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for the many blessings that you've given us and for the way in which you've prospered us as believers and the fact that we live in a free country and we're still free to teach your word, believe your word, proclaim the truth of the gospel. And we pray that that might continue. We pray that despite the many forces that are arrayed against the truth in this nation, so many, many politicians and many judges who seek to dismantle the historical foundation of this nation. We pray that you would preserve it. We pray that you would give wisdom to those who are, even as we speak, fighting cases before the Supreme Court that are uh, important for the future of this nation in terms of continuing the establishment principles upon which this nation was founded. Father, we pray for us as a church that we might not lose sight of the fact that we are here on this earth to be a witness to your grace, a witness to the truth of the scriptures, and that whatever else may transpire in our lives, the reason we are here is to make that testimony known before the angels and before mankind. Now, Father, as we study your word, learn about your plan tonight, we pray that you would help us in this study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, one of the things I want to do uh, begin to do a little differently in this series is in terms of methodology, usually, I come in, I teach for an hour and and um, then we go home. But I want to give this opportunity some of you have studied a lot of things about dispensation. some people have questions. I want to have an opportunity for a little more uh, q and a in the course of our this this particular trip through dispensations as we study it. So keep that in mind. Write down any questions that come to you. Every now and then I'll say, anybody have any questions? And that's your opportunity to raise your hand. You may not think of any questions. You may not think that your question is that bright. My mother used to always say, and my mother was almost always right, that the only dumb question is the question that's not answered or not asked. And so people need to ask, because if you have that question, somebody else probably has that question. And there are some people who probably never have questions, are never going to raise their hand and say, this is my question, but you may have the question, and so they're going to be glad that you asked the question. Sometimes, when you get in situations like this, a lot of, some, uh, there's a few people who ask a lot of the questions, everybody else is just glad that they do. So don't, uh, be self-conscious about that. So we're studying about dispensations, and the question that we want to ask tonight, or one we want to uh, answer to some degree, is just what in the world is a dispensation? It's very important to define terms. We can avoid a lot of confusion by simply having accurate definitions and defining what we're, we're talking about. And dispensation is one of those terms because, like many words that we use in Christianity, it's a rather, it's becoming an antiquated term. The reason it's becoming antiquated is because it's not a word that is used in modern translations, as we'll see. It's used, was used in the King James and I think in some passages even in the New King James, but in modernized translations and such as the NIV, New American Standard Bible, uh, ESV, many of the others, they don't use the word dispensation anymore. So I will make a prediction here, because I've been around long enough to to recognize that the more things change, the more things stay the same, is that just as people say, well, rapture can't be a biblical doctrine because you don't find the word rapture in the Bible, it won't be long before people start saying dispensations isn't a biblical doctrine because you can't find the word in the Scripture. And what we'll discover is that the word is a, a more antiquated English word and was used in the translations, uh, the translation of the New King James Bible, which was the dominant Bible in the 19th century when dispensationalism was developed. So it has a very solid biblical background and biblical foundation. Now, just by way of review, what in the world did we start off with? We started off, remember, talking about some of the key things that are mentioned uh, in, by, by most dispensational theologians as distinctive to dispensationalism. One of those has to do with the infallibility of Scripture. Another has to do with the fact that that human history must be set within the context of Satan's revolt against God. And a third thing would be the importance of our hermeneutic. How do we understand Scripture? And I talked more about that last time. But in the first lesson, I came up with this working definition for dispensationalism. And I've noted, first of all, that it's a theological system. That just means that we've taken uh, a lot of different things that the Bible says related to God's plan for the ages, and we've organized that in a logical, systematic manner. That's what a theological system is. There are a lot of different theological systems. Pentecostal theology is a theological system. Roman Catholic theology is a theological system. Lutheran theology is a theological system. Reformed theology, that which has its source in Calvin's theology, that is a theological system. So there are many different theological systems. Each theological system has its own way of interpreting the Scripture, even among those that came out of the Reformation, where the crying word was literal interpretation they were only consistent with that to a certain degree. And one of the things that makes dispensational distincti- dispensationalism distinctive is uh, this emphasis on a consistent literal interpretation. So dispensationalism is a theological system which understands that God sovereignly governs the history of the human race through a sequence of divinely directed administrations. We'll see why that's important later this evening marked by distinctive periods of time as he works out his plan to destroy sin and evil. What we see is that history, therefore, has a purpose, and that is the destruction of sin and evil, and that God oversees history, so history isn't a bunch of random events. It's not like Henry Ford said one damn thing after another, but it is a sovereignly guided and directed process. It's It may appear chaotic from this side, but it is not chaotic in terms of the direction, the mind, in, uh, in the mind of God and the control of God. Last time I pointed out that Charles Ryrie uh, <clears throat> crystallized the essence of dispensationalism into these three main ideas, uh, which he called they, by a Latin phrase, the sine qua non, uh, which literally means that, the, the without which nothing, in other words, just the essential elements, First of all, a consistent, literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. And people, the reason people like that is because it makes sense to them when they read their Bible. That they can open their Bible and they read what the passage says, and then somebody uh, expounds on the passage, explains the passage, and they can go home and say, and read it again and say, oh, I can follow that. It, it, It opened that passage up to me. It means what it says. And it's not just taking it into some sort of uh, allegorical, spiritualized realm where the meaning of the passage doesn't really have anything to do with the words that I read on the text. And the key word here is consistent. As a result of that, we see the second point, which is that God has a plan for Israel and a plan for the church. Israel isn't a code word for the church in the Old Testament. Israel means Israel the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the church refers to the church, that is, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning on the day of Pentecost in AD 33, and extending until the rapture of the church. And that God's plan for Israel is distinct from God's plan for the church. Third thing that characterizes dispensational theology is it recognizes that the overall purpose of God's plan for his creation is his glory, his essence, glorifying himself, vindicating his essence against the charges of Satan and the fallen angels and a fallen atheistic mankind that God is not really righteous and or, or just. Now, the golden rule of interpretation, as stated by uh, D.L. Cooper, David Cooper, when the plain sense of Scripture makes sense, makes common sense, seek no other sense Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicates clearly otherwise. That is a great definition. Take it at its face value in terms of the normal use of language unless there's something there to indicate it should be taken another way. Now, what, what are some clues that we might think about That would indicate that maybe the passage isn't to be taken literally. What would be a couple of obvious things that we might, we might think about that would indicate that a passage wasn't to be taken literally? Can anybody think of any? parables. Parables, very good, John. Parables. As soon as you know it's a parable, you know it's talking in some sort of representative analogy. It's not talking about literally, literal specific historical events, but it's telling a story for the purpose of communicating a spiritual principle. What's another, uh, what would be another clue that something is not to be taken literally? Could be, yeah, it's the signs like in Revelation. That would be another one. What's another clue? What about poetry? As soon as you, especially in some modern, some modern Bibles, they offset poetic sections, and you discover that not only are the Psalms set in poetry, but many, much of the uh, revelation in the, in the prophets is set off in poetry, and poetry is not going to use language in exactly the same way that legal lit- literature will use language. Uh, <clears throat> the language often stands for something. There's more of a use of metaphor and simile in poetry than you have in legal literature, but it's still within the norm of language, so that a metaphor or simile has a common usage in a language which can be discovered by evaluating how it's used in other other contexts. Okay, so that's what we looked at. And one of the ways that we established this last week was was uh, to look at how prophecy that has been fulfilled in the past, how that prophecy was fulfilled. Was it fulfilled literally or was it fulfilled symbolically? In other words, we looked at, for example, the destruction of Tyre. We discovered that the prophecy regarding the destruction of Tyre actually took place in Austin, Texas. Oh no, no, it didn't. It took place entire. How unusual! A literal name was it was fulfilled in a literal location, and so and and how it was destroyed uh, described exactly how it was destroyed a couple hundred years later after the prophecy uh, to 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 uh, to a T. So that shows us those are examples of how the Bible interprets itself. All right, now tonight I want to go into the next section where we're defining the concept of dispensations and understanding this. And, and one of the problems we run into in understanding dispensationalism is that often it has been uh, presented in a somewhat confusing manner to people. And I would suggest that for many, many of us, when we first hear the term dispensationalism, one of the first things that goes into our mind is something to do with time, something to do with time. In fact, if I go back to my opening slide, if I can, there we go, if I go back to my opening slide here, what what do we see in that opening slide? If I can go there. There we go. What do we see? Well, we see something similar to a clock. It reminds us of a clock, and it it is the march of time. Is time really the key element in dispensations? That's what many people think. So we need to evaluate that a little bit because we'll discover that time is not the key idea in the concept of dispensations but it's present in some sense. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Acts 1, 6 and 7. This is just a tremendous uh, passage because of some of the vocabulary that's here. When is this taking place? It's taking place after the resurrection of our Lord. In fact, it's taking place just prior to his ascension when he is going to just take off into heaven. And uh, for the first time in the history of the world, people are going to see a human being just elevate right off the ground and just take off right through the heavens. And that's what happens when the Lord Jesus Christ departed the earth. He assembled his disciples together and gave them a command to wait in Jerusalem uh, for the promise of the Father. Now, there's a verse that in some uh, theological systems has been taken, to, has been interpreted allegorically. And uh, the command was to wait, wait, uh, wait for the promise of the Father. And the old King James translated that, tarry. And in the early 20th century, late 19th century, that was taken out of context, translated allegorical, allegorically and applied to everyday Christians that once they were saved, they needed to tarry. They needed to tarry by the altar at the church. And they needed to tarry and tarry and wait and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. But they were waiting for the wrong thing because the Holy Spirit already came. But see, that's just an example, I thought I'd point out, of of non-literal interpretation. Literal interpretation makes us understand that Jesus is talking to the eleven. They're in a specific location in Jerusalem, and he tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Spirit. That promise was fulfilled in Acts 2, so you can't try to apply that anymore. It can't be applied anymore. No principle there can be applied because it was historically conditioned. Then in verse 6, Jesus said, or the text reads, And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel. And what have they been talking about? Well, for the last 40 days, they've been talking about the kingdom. Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom. In verse 3, we read that after the resurrection, he presented himself alive with many infallible proofs. See, Jesus demonstrated the with proofs the reality of the resurrection faith is not apart from from true, from a uh, proof faith is based on logical historical reality that can be demonstrated it's not contrary we live in a culture today where people want to make faith private Faith should be public. It impacts the public arena because faith impacts everything we think, say, and do. So faith has a place at the table in the public arena, and everybody who says it's not is simply an enemy of the cross, an enemy of Christ, an enemy of the Scripture, and an enemy of truth. And so they, Jesus presented himself with these many infallible proofs during the 40 days and taught them, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of heaven kingdom of God. And so at the end of 40 days, what question did they ask him? They said, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They understood the kingdom to be a literal geopolitical kingdom with uh, the headquarters of the king in Jerusalem. But Jesus' response is interesting. He didn't say, don't you silly boys, don't you know that that this is a spiritual kingdom, that this kingdom is where I'm going to go, and it's going to be from heaven. He didn't correct them that way. So if the amillennialists, that's a term meaning no literal future kingdom, not the amillennialists were right, then uh, Jesus' answer here is wrong. But he doesn't correct their concept of the kingdom. He corrects, at this point, their desire to know the timing. He says, it's not for you to know the times and epochs. And he uses these two terms here, times and epochs, in order to talk about the structure of God's plan in the future. And he's saying the timing issues and the, the issues related to identification of these events are not for you to know. The Father has fixed these By his own authority. Now, what's interesting is that 20 years later, somewhere around 20 years later, the Apostle Paul is writing to the congregation at Thessalonica. Now, we just got through with our study in Acts, so we know that when Paul went to Thessalonica, he was on his second missionary journey. He was there for a relatively short period of time, maybe two to three months. So he wasn't there for 5, 10, 15 years, and then he finally got around to teaching the doctrines related to the future and the doctrines related to God's plan. He's there for three months maybe, and he's teaching them about God's plan and purposes for human history. And he uses the same terms that the the, uh, apostles used, the disciples used in Acts chapter 1. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, rather he says, Now as to the times, chronos, and the epochs, or seasons, as it's used in the Old King James, times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Why? Because they didn't need to know it? No, because he had already taught them about it. So they were informed by Paul about God's plan for the future. Now, the disciples, the day before Pentecost, ask a question related to timing, and Jesus says, it's not for y'all to know this, but 20 years later, this is a a common part of basic biblical teaching. What changed? What changed is that the Apostle Paul came on the scene in God's uh, timing, and revelation related to God's plan and purposes and what we call dispensationalism, uh, God's mystery doctrine of the church, were revealed during that period of time because the basic information about the coming church age was still somewhat veiled by the time Jesus ascended to heaven. He had taught his disciples. He had taught a few. There's a few things he taught, for example, John 13 through John 17 and the gospel, gospel of John. But basically this was something that had not been announced in the Old Testament which is why it's called the mystery of the church. It was mystery doesn't refer to a riddle, it doesn't refer to some sort of who done it. It refers to the fact that God has has not revealed something and now it has been revealed. And so the point that we see from this is is that God has a plan. He has now revealed That plan to us so that we can understand the dynamics and the structure of that plan and therefore we need to study it so that we can properly understand his word. So there are three things we can derive from this. First of all, we see that God definitely has a plan which includes different time periods that have different characteristics. There are different time periods with different characteristics. Most people sort of Uh, recognize that if you're not taking a sacrifice to the temple in Jerusalem, you recognize that some things that were common in the Old Testament period are not practiced at all today. If you are uh, not looking for a physical priesthood uh, that, that derived from the lineage of Aaron, then you know that some things are different some things are not the same so God has has these different time periods. The apostles clearly saw that the period in which they lived was different from the time of the kingdom, as Jesus described it, and so they could identify from where they were that there was a period. Uh, that they were living in that was different from the future period, and the period in which they were living was different, even though this isn't in the text, I think we can infer it, the time in which they were living was different from the time uh, prior to the cross. So there you can identify at least three different time periods, three different ways in which God was addressing the human race. That's the first thing we can conclude. The second thing we can conclude is that Jesus' answer indicates that the temporal boundaries, that is, the time limits for these ages, are determined in the decrees of God. They're under God's authority. He determines uh, when a period of time ends and another period of time begins. It's under his control. God's determined the beginning and the end of each of these time periods And there are certain characteristics that we can identify so that we know when, what time period applies to what, uh, area, what areas of responsibility in the scripture. And then a third thing that we can see from the, comparing these passages is that the apostle Paul clearly taught about prophecy and God's plan for the ages even in the short period of time he had in Thessalonica, he considered this to be part of foundational doctrine that every single believer needed to understand. It's not, some people get the idea, well, prophecies, that's off in the distance somewhere. It's awfully confusing. It's awfully difficult. I don't really need to know. I just need to be concerned with the here and now. But that wasn't the viewpoint of the Apostle Paul are the other writers of Scripture. Prophecy was important to understand, and especially God's plan was important to understand. So we recognize that there are different ways in which God is overseeing history. And just from looking at these two passages, so how can we understand, describe, and talk about these things? And one of the words that we use is the word Dispensation. Okay, what is a dispensation? Now, we just blew through a couple of important passages there in First um, Thessalonians and Acts 1. And so I want to see if anybody has any questions or confusion or anything they want clarified. Uh, and if you do, just kind of raise your hand if I ignore you for a while. That'll be fine. I'll get to a point where I can stop, and then I'll call on you. But I want to give you the opportunity to ask or address any any areas of uh, uncertainty or or confusion. Okay, what's a dispensation? How do we understand this? Well, let's break the word down etymologically. Now, etymology simply tells us the history of a word, its derivation. But the derivation of a term doesn't have or may not have anything to do with its meaning in a passage. That is a common fallacy that, uh, that plagues many Bible teachers. They go back and they look at how, at the background to a word. Sometimes it can it can open up things and help us to understand things, but other times it just tells us how people use the word 500 years before it was used in the New Testament, and it doesn't tell us anything about how the word's used in the New Testament. We have an example in English. We have the English word charity that's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in the King James Bible. And in 1600, charity had a completely different connotation than it does today. And when you look at the word love today, which is how we translate the, uh, the, the same word agape in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when we look at, at the fact that we translate it love today, what we think of as love is not what we think of when we use the word charity. So we can do a historical search on the etymology of the word charity, and it's not going to help us understand agape very much. And that's a problem with etymology. But sometimes it helps us just to understand an English word a little bit and why we're using that word. And since dispensation is a word we don't find in most modern translations of the Scripture, we need to understand that just a little bit. It comes from the Latin word dispensatio, which means to deal out or to weigh out, to dispense or distribute something. So it's used in a kind of a context where somebody has a finite set of resources and they are distributing those resources to other people and And that comes under the general category of administration, how something is administered or managed, and so that is where it relates to the the Greek words that are used. So the Latin word dispensatio comes from this idea of dispensing or distributing something <clears throat> now in the webster 's third new international dictionary, there are several meanings that are listed. I thought it was kind of interesting. The first meaning they they offer is that the word dispensation refers to a divine ordering and administration of worldly affairs. What's the key word there? I mean, that's a hard question since I underlined it. What's the key word? Administration. Do we find a time-based word there? Anything related to a time frame? No, not at all. Just it's administration which is important because that's the key meaning of the, the Greek term that we have uh, in the, in the uh, New Testament. Second meaning that Webster's List is the idea of a system of principles, promises, and rules divinely ordained and administered. So here it's talking about what? Rules that are administered. Again, the main idea is administration or management, not time. Yet, when we look, and we'll look at some other quotes later on, we'll see that time is often the first thing that people think about, not administration. Now, in the third meaning, it states a period of history. Now, only in the third meaning do we bring in an idea related to time, a period of history during which a particular divine revelation has predominated in the affairs of mankind. And there brings in the idea related to divine revelation, which is very important in understanding dispensationalism. And then the fourth meaning is in a general state or ordering of things. So what we want to conclude from this, and that's important, is to recognize that a dispensation takes place in time. It's going to be bordered by temporal factors, But it isn't necessarily related to time. It's related to administration or management. That's really the idea. So that's a maybe different way for some people to think about what dispensationalism is all about because the concepts of administration and management bring in some corollary ideas such as responsibility and accountability that are not necessarily inherent when we think about just the time factor. So administration and management brings in some relationship to, to uh, responsibility. So there's a couple of things that we can conclude from this, and that is that the concept of, disp- of a dispensation relates to the action of administering or ordering something. How is this going to be administered or managed? Uh, the idea of dealing out or distributing something. Uh and in the second meaning the act of administer, it refers to the act of administering or dispensing. There's a typo there, dispensing with some requirement. Okay, now what are some related terms? Now this is important just to help us understand the time factor. I'm not saying that a dispensational dispensation is totally unrelated to time. I'm just thinking that for many of us, because we've seen all those wonderful charts of the ages, that the first idea that comes into our mind is that a dispensation is a time. Dispensation is an administration. Time is a secondary idea. Now, some of the words that I want to look at now are time words, and this is important because time is part of the issue. What did the disciples say? Is it at this time that you're going to bring in the kingdom? So, time's not unrelated. The first word is the word Ionas. Ionas. This is one of the words that's used in in Acts one uh, six and seven, and also our one seven. And Jesus answered, the times or the seasons, and it's a word used in First uh, Thessalonians five one through two. Uh, is also, uh, no, excuse me, Ionas is not used there, but it's used in other passages. Ionas refers to a period of time in human history. So it talks about an age. Now, one of the things that I think is important is that there are certain ages in history that have certain characteristics. They may include subdivisions of dispensations. Okay? So we have an age from Adam to the tower, of or actually to the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. There are three dispensations, three different ways God administers history because there's new revelation given. There's revelation given in Genesis 1. There's a modification given in Genesis 3. There's another modification given in Genesis chapter 9. But there's one thing that the history from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12 has in common. And that is that God is working through the whole of the human race, and they're all Gentiles. There's no Jews. There's no separate Jewish entity until the call of Abraham in in Genesis chapter twelve. And so this is the age of the Gentiles. Uh, then you have another age that comes, which is related to Israel, and that begins in Genesis chapter twelve when God calls Abram to go to to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to. Uh, a land that God will show him, and that God working specifically through Israel dominates from then until Israel goes out under divine discipline in A. D. seventy, when it's replaced by a new age or era uh, of the Church. And so, these are broad categories, broad ages. They're 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 not necessarily defined by some of the more detailed uh, p- aspects of, of a dispensation. So we have an age from the word ionos. Then we have another word, chronos. Chronos is used in Acts 1, 6, and 7, and First Thess 5, uh, 1 and 2, and translated times in both passages. Uh, it, it's not, Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times, the chronos. Chronos looks at time in, in in chronological order in terms of its sequence of events. So it looks in terms of those sequence of events and what comes first, what comes second, what comes third, what comes fourth. And so what Jesus is saying it's not at this time for you to know the the chronology, the sequential unfolding of certain events. But when you look at Revelation, the book of Revelation, obviously there's a sequential unfolding of events. So Jesus is not making an absolute statement in in Acts chapter 1 verse 7 that we're never to know these things, but that it wasn't the right time for the disciples to be filled in on those events. That would come with the new revelation related to the New Testament through the Apostle Paul. Now, there are sequential events in the Old Testament. For example, in the um, uh, age of Israel, I should change that terminology. In fact, I'm going to do it right while we're um, talking about it so it'll get saved. Sometimes things don't get quite saved like that. So we're going to change that definition right now to the age of Israel. The age of Israel... Wait a minute, I'm back. I backed up and missed something. Here we are. The age of Israel has a sequence of three main eras. There's a period of the patriarchs. Now what we'll see is that each of these is marked by specifically new revelation. That's how, when we were listening to Dr. Johnson, Dr. Johnson did not clarify this. He kind of alluded to something related to this, and he was taking dispensation in a broader sense. I would disagree with that because I think the way we know how an administration, how the requirements and responsibilities of administration change is through new revelation, and that's given through the covenants. We'll look at that in detail uh, in the next week or two. But for now, just think about this. The age of Israel covers three basic uh, uh, dispensations uh, that are sequential. There's the period of the patriarchs. Then there's the dispensation of the law. And then there's the tribulation. Each of those has distinct uh, requirements for Israel and distinct characteristics. So you can't just call all of them the age of Israel and stop there there's much more to it. There's more detail given in in Scripture. So this is uh, chronos referring to the times and sequential events that take place. Then we have another word that's used, and that's the word kairos. Kairos has to do with uh, time as a concept. Time as a concept, and it relates to, uh, especially can refer to a point-in-time or a moment Uh, in that case it can be synonymous with ionos and indicate an age or an epoch but because it's time it brings in the idea that there are certain specific boundaries a way in which these can be uh, definitely uh, addressed or identified this is the word that is translated seasons in Acts 1 5 and 1 Thessalonians 5 1 and 2 chronos, the sequence of, event, sequence of events, and seasons, indicating time periods that are fixed by identifiable boundaries. Then the other word that, that comes out of the Greek that we use is the word oikonomos. Oikonomos is a noun. Oikonomia uh, is also a noun. Oikonomos refers to the steward or the administrator and oikonomia talks about the management or the administration that's uh, that that the administrator uh, governs with, with that that he enacts that he oversees. Oikonomos comes is the word from which we get our English word economy, and it means to manage something, to regulate it, to administer, it, to oversee it. So. Uh, the administration means the way in which things are, the, the, the business is conducted, the way in which things are carried out. And so it would involve certain standards or rules. So some of the rules, so what we see is as we go through dispensation, some of the rules are going to stay the same and some of the rules are going to change. One rule that never changes is that salvation from Genesis to Revelation is always by grace through faith. It's always in an object that God gives. It's not a vague object. It's the object of the Savior. But in the Old Testament, that object is somewhat ambiguous. It's the promise of the seed, the promise of uh, the Messiah who would come to provide redemption. But a lot of the specifics were uncertain because they're only revealed progressively through the Old Testament. Adam knew more than I think Genesis tells us, but he doesn't know as much as, as for example, David will know. David knew a lot, I think David knew more than, 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 than he led on, or the, the Old Testament tells us. Why do I say that? Because when you think about Abraham in the Old Testament, it says he looked forward to a city that was built without hands. Where does it say that in Genesis? It tells us that in Hebrews 11. So we know from Hebrews 11 also that he understood resurrection. He counted on the fact that God would raise Isaac from the dead. But there's no mention of resurrection, no mention of his belief in resurrection in Genesis 22. So there are clearly things that the the Old Testament patriarchs knew and understood that we aren't told about. But some hints are given to us later on in some of the New Testament books. So we know that there are some things, but they didn't know everything. I think it goes too far to think that in the Old Testament they understood crucifixion or they understood some of those factors. They might have understood to some degree that the the suffering servant is going to be a substitute for us. It's clear from Isaiah 53 I don't know how clear that would be. Pri- much prior to that, there are certainly pictures of substitution. There's the substitution of the ram. I mean, you can go back further than that. There's the substitution of the animals in Genesis chapter four that God killed to provide the uh, coverings for Adam. There's substitution with um, uh, the lamb in Genesis, uh, the ram in Genesis chapter twenty-two that was provided for for uh, Isaac in his place. There's the substitution of the blood, the sacrifice at Pesach, at Passover, in Exodus. So clearly there's evidence of that. Uh, How detailed that needed to be understood by the believer in the Old Testament is a question where there's a lot of debate. I think it's at least clear that there's a promise of a seed Messiah who's going to redeem people from their sin, and the belief was in the future fulfillment of that promise. That's clear in the Old Testament at least that much. So there's clearly these, these differences that changes after, of course, the cross. So God administers through revelation, and there's a progress of revelation. Uh, Daniel knew more than Isaiah. Isaiah knew more than David. David knew more than a- Abraham. Abraham knew more than Adam. That's the progress of revelation. Revelation. Now, the word oikonomos is a combination of two Greek words, oikos, meaning house, and namas meaning law. Oikonomos, so it's house law. It's the rules of the house. When you were... Five years old, your parents had certain rules of the house. You had to be in bed at a certain time. If you went outside of the house, if you were going to leave the property of your home, you had to let them know. You couldn't go down the street without adult supervision. As you got a little older, you might be allowed to go a little further you might have restrictions on how far you could ride your bicycle. When you got a little older, you could stay up a little later. Uh, there were some television shows you couldn't watch when you were little, but as you got older, you could watch them. The rules changed not because your parents were inconsistent, although they might have been, um, but because as you grew and matured, It created a different environment. Circumstances changed, but they all reflected an underlying absolute of providing what was best for you as a child in terms of your development. So that's the idea that we have, is that God manages history in relation to the way in which he is revealing himself to the human race. Now, the concept of economy which is where we get where where we uh, the word we derive from oikonomos uh based on random houses uh, uh Webster's dictionary is the management of the resources of a community country etc the disposition of regulation of the parts or functions of any organic whole it's an organized system that's what we look at in dispensation each era is an organized system there are rules, there are regulations, there's uh, uh, regulations of the parts and functions, and it's the overall management of those spiritual resources within a certain period of time. So that helps us understand the basic concept here in terms of, of the word for dispensation. So when we come into English, the word dispensation indicates a distinct and identifiable administration. Notice I di- don't start off saying it's a period of time. Well, see, that that's, that's, gets us pointed in the wrong direction right off the bat. It's a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. And then some scripture where this is used, Ephesians 3, 2, and Colossians one25 to 26. Now, there's three different forms of this word that are used in the New Testament. Oikonomeo is the verb. It means to administer. That's used uh, one time in Luke sixteen two, and it's translated to be a steward. A steward is someone who administers or manages resources. We talk about giving as stewardship. God gives us financial resources, and we need to manage those resources, and part of our management of our financial resources has to do with using a portion of that for the Lord's work. Oikonomos is the noun. And it's used ten times in these passages listed here. Luke twelve forty-two, Luke sixteen, one, three, and eight. Luke sixteen is a key passage for understanding uh dispensation on uh, the use of the term. Romans sixteen twenty-three, first Corinthians four, one and two, Galatians four two, Titus one seven, first Peter four ten. Oikonomos is a noun, and then it's used as a, a noun also in oikonomia, but it's referring to not the stewardship or the management, uh, 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 the manager, but the management, the administrative, admi- the work of administration by the administrator. Now, Jesus uses this term in Luke chapter 16. So let's turn to Luke chapter 16. Just at the beginning of Luke chapter 16. This is called the parable of the unjust steward. He in verse 1 is talking about Jesus. He says he also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. Steward is the word iconomos, a manager. He is the business manager for the wealthy man. He's handling his resources. He's handling his his uh, possessions, managing all that he has. There's a certain rich man who had a manager, business manager, and an accusation was brought to him that his business manager is embezzling his money, wasting his goods. So in verse 2, he called him and said to him, "'What is this I hear about you?' Give an account of your stewardship. See, that's that second word there, or third word, rather, oikonomia. Oikonomia is the administration of the oikonomos. Uh, Give an account of your administration, your management, for you can no longer be the manager, the steward. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the management away from me. I cannot, uh, dig. I, I mean, I can't do manual labor is what he's saying. I can't do manual labor and I can't be homeless. I can't beg. So he's, he's threatened with the loss of his, of his income. Now there's a couple of things that we can observe from just the usage of the word. First of all, In the sense of administration, there's two parties involved. There's the wealthy man, the boss, analogous to God, and the administrator who is given a responsibility. So one of the parties has the authority to delegate responsibility to the other, and the other has the responsibility to carry out their duties. So inherent within this meaning of this term is the idea that there is a, a steward, an entity, a person or an entity such as Israel or the church that is given a responsibility. So when we look at, when we get to the end of this, we're not going get, to get it fully covered tonight, but when we get to the end of this and we talk about a dispensation, one of the reasons that I don't agree with the fact that the age of the Gentiles or the age of Israel is a dispensation is because of the revelation that's given through the covenants within those structures. There are different designations of responsibilities. The responsibilities under the Adamic covenant in Genesis 3 are modified and changed under the Noahic covenant. They may both be in the same age, but... Something different is expected of human beings between Adam and Noah than between Noah and Abraham. So that indicates that the management situation has changed as a result of revelation. So the one who is in authority, God, uh, determines what those responsibilities are. Second thing we observe here is that there are specific responsibilities for the manager, for the steward. God says, this is what I expect of you. It's not a guess, it's not a guessing game. It's not, well, I'm just going to go out and do what I think will make God happy. Doesn't matter what I think, what ma- matters is what God has revealed. And the third thing we see is that accountability and responsibility are part of the arrangement. God is, expects and will account from the manager uh, in terms of the responsibilities designated. And at any point in time, the steward or the manager may be called to explain how he has fulfilled his responsibilities. And if he hasn't done well, then fourth, a change can be made at any time if unfaithfulness is found. Now, so the key idea in stewardship here that we're going to see is that, that faithfulness is what God's really looking for. Faithfulness relates to obeying that which has been set forth and has been uh, identified as the responsibility of the manager. Okay, now that brings us to the next section, which is quite a long section in my notes, and that is certain key ideas that are present in dispensations that we derive from the various uses of the word. So... Well, what I basically pointed out tonight and want to really drive home is that a dispensation is marked off by certain responsibilities given to a manager, someone who's an administrator, who is is holding a trust from God. To administer his responsibilities the way God has defined him. The key idea in dispensation is not time, it's administration, which brings in the idea of accountability and responsibility, but it is with, that, that period of administration is within a time frame. So time isn't something forgotten, it is something that's there, but the key idea is that we are, we have a responsibility to perform as members of the church, in the Old Testament, Israel had a responsibility before that. The Gentiles had a responsibility, and so that is determined by God's revelation. So we'll come back next time and get into a few more of the concepts related to dispensations. Anybody have any questions? Anybody forget their question? I saw a couple of people kind of going, wait, wait a minute, what, what was that? Okay, that's what we've done, so we'll come back next time and press on. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at this important concept of how you are administering history, delegating responsibility to different members of the human race, that these responsibilities are not covert. They have been revealed to us, and we can come to understand them. And by identifying these different responsibilities, we can see that you work through the human race in different ways, During different periods of time and it's important to recognize that and recognize those distinctions if we're going to properly interpret your word so father we pray that you would help us to understand what we're learning so far and how this applies to our understanding of your word we pray this in christ's name amen